Oh, Bretto. What's up, MP? Damo just called. Yeah? He thinks there's going to be 100,000 people at the Wellness Summit. Oh, again? He thinks we're bigger than Michael Jackson, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles all put together. Damien Christoph has gone completely mad. Did you know he's made eight tonnes of forage? What? <laughs> and now he wants you and I to help him get rid of it. Oh, Damo. So, look, being the good friends that we are, we've asked him. You've been forced. Well, we've kind of twisted his arm to make him literally give his forage away to 100 lucky Wellness Summit attendees. So if you're ready to enrol for our signature two days of inspiration, education and empowerment and entertainment. What do you mean, MP? Australian Idol winner Wes Carr makes his Wellness Summit debut this year, Bretto. Wes Carr, you'll be guilty. So if you're ready to be entertained, head on over to thewellnesssummit.com and get four value bags of forage muesli or one bag each of paleo, muesli, bircher and porridge when you register. Now, all you need to do is register for this two-for-one special, bring a buddy, bring a friend, bring a family member or a colleague and then choose your forage selection, four muesli or four assorted and get four bags per attendee. That's eight bags per double pass. That's almost 250 bucks of forage for free when you register for the Wellness Summit on August 25-26 at the Collingwood Town Hall in Melbourne. That's 150 serves of breakfast. Almost six months of breakfast just for registering for the Wellness Summit. Well, it's first in best dressed. These 100 tickets are only available until June 18 or until sold out. All the details of this special offer, all the topics, featured speakers and more are over at thewellnesssummit.com. Thanks for making eight tons of forage, Damo. The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by Bear Blends. Bear Blends are dedicated to producing the healthiest protein powders and unique nutritional powders. They use only natural and organic whole foods and all of their products are non-GMO and free of artificial flavors, colors, and sweeteners. My personal new favorite is their vanilla and coconut plant protein. Visit bearblends.com.au to learn more and check out their gorgeous recipe info over on Instagram at bearblends. Welcome to The Real Food Reel. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast, and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning in to today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Reel. In episode 180 of The Real Food Reel, we are joined by sports medicine physician, Dr. Paul Mason. In today's episode, we explore low carb and Paul's personal journey to reversing metabolic syndrome. We break down many nutritional dogmas, including salt, 
the diet heart hypothesis, total cholesterol, and saturated fat. We also explore fiber, FODMAPs, gut health, how to avoid unnecessary surgery, and so much more. Hi, Paul, and welcome to the show. Hi, Steph. Thanks for having me. Really excited for our conversation. I've been following your work for some time now, and I'm just thrilled to have you on the show and to share your knowledge with my listeners. But before we get too far into our topic today, tell us a little bit about you and your background. Well, I guess the reason I'm here is because I'm passionate about low-carb diets and my position, I'm actually a sports and exercise medicine physician. So I split my days between dealing with athletes and uh, people's injuries and the other part of my practice is heavily focused on dealing with metabolic issues, weight loss, diabetes, that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, cool. A fascinating combination. And I know from what I know about you that you developed quite a specific interest in low-carbohydrate diets back in 2011. Can you share with us a little bit about like how that came about and obviously what you've then dived into from a research point of view and certainly how that differs from your conventional training? Yeah, well, back in 2011, I was sort of, you know, the typical junior doctor getting around full of medical school wisdom and knowledge. And uh, I was exercising. I, I used to, you know, ride 150 kilometers a week, be in the gym several times a week. I used to count the milligrams of sodium I had, used to have a very low fat diet. And of course, I used to have all the sugar in the world because that wasn't considered to be a problem. But the issue was I had metabolic syndrome. So if you have a look at the what metabolic syndrome is, it's a cluster of five features. And if you have three of those, you can be considered to have metabolic syndrome. And I was getting around, I wasn't overweight, but I had all the other ones. I had, you know, poor cholesterol profiles or dyslipidemia. My uh, triglycerides weren't very good. I, uh, I had hypertension. My blood pressure was over 160. And this is sort of in the back of your head. It's sort of giving you concern. You're thinking, what else can I do? Do another bike ride, you know, mm-hmm. eat a little bit less salt. And almost serendipitously one day I was sitting down and there was a medical journal in front of me and we're watching TV and the commercial breaks came on so I hit mute and I picked it up and there was an editorial there that was espousing the benefits of ketogenic and low-carb diets and I sort of glanced at it and thought, no, that can't be right, it's got to be rubbish and I sort of put it down and it was one of those shows where the commercials came up every two minutes almost. So by the end of the show I'd actually picked it up again and I had read of it and I thought that actually makes a lot of sense and I went to the reference list and it really had me intrigued and I was still very skeptical I, I, I'll be honest I really didn't believe it but I was interested enough to go and have a look at the research and I ended up doing a deep dive and effectively I've been consumed with it ever since and I looked at it and I felt I've been wrong the one of the things you need to know about me is I'm also a physiotherapist. I trained as a physio in the late 90s. And when I was a physio, a lot of people would ask me for advice about diet. And I used to totally dismiss these people who come in on the Atkins diet. And I really, uh, I guess, doing this, it's almost recanting and sort of trying to make up for some of the uh, the bad advice which I used to give myself. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating, but it's not dissimilar to Tim Noakes who will discussed today, I think it's at least 
great that you can admit that you were wrong and look at what the research is and um, then obviously go about recorrecting that and, and being able to inspire and educate so many more people. So that's the most important consideration, but I'm sure it would have been a big shock for you to to realize that you had metabolic syndrome when what you were doing were following the guidelines that you were taught and that we'd been told for decades. Well, I mean, obviously, I just had no idea what was going on. But I think you raise an important point about the ability to admit that you're wrong. And mm. the thing which I'm fascinated about is how people like Timothy Noakes, you know, an illustrious scientist can come out and admit he was wrong. And rather than being hailed as somebody who's actually, you know, following the science and pre- humble enough to come out and admit fault, he's just been heavily, heavily criticised. And uh, for me, I think we should be revering these leaders in the field who are actually able to come out and say, guys, we've been operating off the wrong paradigm. It's time for a rethink. Oh, I'm with you. I mean, we shared um, Tim's story and we have a number of times, but definitely his more recent trial. So I will um, link that episode in the show notes for those that aren't across all of the details. But yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I think the way things are being approached um, are still very upside down and, you know, hopefully in time we'll see things change in that regard. But you're obviously um, writing a medical or you're part of writing a medical textbook and I'd love to know yeah, what, what direction that's taking, seeing as we do know that a lot of the textbooks, if not all of them to this day, are still supporting that conventional wisdom. Well, this was one of those projects that you take on without ever realising how much work it's actually going to be. <laughs> So I'm sure most of your listeners will know Dr. Peter Bruckner. Mm-hmm. So he's actually the uh, authored the world's best-selling sports medicine textbook way back in the 90s, Clinical Sports Medicine. And now that's coming up for, uh, I think, the fourth, uh, fifth edition now. And the most recent edition is being split into two volumes. And Peter actually asked me if I'd write the nutrition section on health for uh, this most recent edition of his book. Now, it's just an enormous task. Now, Peter said at the start, just write it as balanced as you can. You know, we don't want to offend the sensibilities of everybody who's going to read it. It's going to have to be for the mainstream. And I sat down and I started writing and I rang up Peter and I said, Peter, I just can't do it. (laughs) I said, if you want me to present a balanced view that in some way countenances that carbohydrates are healthy, I just can't find the evidence to support that. And I said, I can write an evidence-based chapter, but I can't write one that absolves carbohydrates of any impacts on health. And as it's turned out, so we're up to almost 20,000 words in this chapter now. We've got over 200 references. It's taken an enormous amount of time, but the more research I do, the more I look into it, the more convinced I am is that we've been barking up the wrong tree with our our dietary guidelines for the last several decades. Mm. Yep. I totally agree. And, you know, you and I were talking pre-recording about the Women's Health Initiative study. So maybe we can go there and and talk about some of the previous research and and what's gone on behind the scenes, essentially. I mean, the Women's Health Initiative study, I think, is a, it's almost the, case study for where science has gone wrong where we've done some great research 
and we've actually got some really important findings. But the problem is those findings have been misinterpreted and miscommunicated. So for those of you who don't know, the Women's Health Initiative study was the world's most expensive medical study ever conducted. It cost about 700 million US dollars. And in one of the arms of this study, they had a, almost 50,000 females who were either placed on a low-fat or a regular diet. And they were followed for about eight years on average. And in the low-fat group, they had an average dietary fat reduction of almost 10%. So if there was ever any one single trial that would find in favour of the low-fat diet who would support the diet-heart hypothesis, this study would have been it. And yet, when the results were presented, it was widely presented as we didn't have any positive results, so all the results were essentially non-statistically significant, and the conclusions of the, uh, the project officer leading it was this simply shows that we didn't have a strict enough reduction in dietary fat to see benefit and that we should double down on the low-fat message. Now, one of the most inexcusable things about this whole trial is that while the findings were presented as though there was no significant findings, there actually was one. And that one finding never made it into the results table, never made it into the attached forest plots, and it was just an obscure line of text that wasn't elaborated on. And effectively what it said was that if you had cardiovascular or heart disease before the study started and you were placed in the low-fat group, then your chance of having cardiac incidents like heart attacks and things like that was 26% higher. And this finding was statistically significant, which means it was very unlikely to have occurred by chance. Mm. So this directly goes in contrast to the diet-heart hypothesis, the theory that lowering saturated fat and fat in the diet would be good for you was neatly disproven in this study. And for some reason, this finding has never truly entered the scientific discourse. And there was other findings in the study as well that have not been mentioned, in particular things like di diabetes and uh, insulin resistance. So if you had uh, diabetes and you were put on the low-fat group, it was shown that your glycemic control significantly worsened. <laughs> and again, this is... You know, this is a 700 million US dollar study we're talking about and these findings are valuable and for some reason, like even us in the medical profession, we've had the wool pulled over our eyes and if that can be done to us, then what hope is there for the public? Mm. Yeah. Who funded that study? Do you know? It was, I believe it was a, uh, the National Institute of Health in the US. Okay. So I don't, so I don't know about any influences Aside from that, from all I understand is that it seems to have been done, a well-done study, and mm. it, it seemed to have quite good methodologies. Um, having said that, they did favour the low-fat group, but the big problem was that when they got their findings, um, they just misinterpreted and mischaracterised what they were. Yeah, researcher bias perhaps. It is tragic, though, because obviously that then has this huge flow-on effect to professionals, like medical professionals, who are then the ones delivering the, the diet heart hypothesis, and we're continuing to uh, bash saturated fats and, and, you know, total cholesterol is still being spoken about as the, the be-all and end-all from a cardiovascular disease point of view. So I wanted just to get your thoughts on 
on that, I mean, we've had Peter Bruckner on the show. We've also spoken to um, Ken Sakaris, and um, mm-hmm. we have definitely discussed in detail about total cholesterol and some of the myths there. But I just wanted to to bring that up with you just to get your thoughts on on total cholesterol and saturated fat. Well, I mean, look, you can look at this from two perspectives. You can look at it from just an evidence base uh, epidemiologically. You know, is there an association with saturated fat and cholesterol and all-cause mortality? And there's simply not. But for me, the really exciting thing is that we're now beginning to have a mechanistic understanding of how it actually relates. I mean, just for your listeners, just very broadly, in days gone by, we used to talk about what the total cholesterol number was and we used to get concerned with that. And then we realised that we could be a little bit more nuanced and break that down into what we call HDL and LDL cholesterol. Mm -hmm. And it's probably at this point I should point out that when we're actually talking about cholesterol, that's actually an incorrect term. So cholesterol is actually a molecule. It's what we call a sterile molecule. And you can no more have a good or a bad molecule of cholesterol than you can have a good or a bad molecule of water. Mm. I mean, it's cholesterol just is. It's made by every animal cell. It's essential for life. We make steroid hormones from it. We make bile acids from it. Without it, we die. Mm. Um, about 80% of what we actually have in our bodies is actually made. So the dietary contribution is actually very small. And you might be interested to know that the latest US dietary guidelines have removed any upper limit of dietary consumption on cholesterol, which is quite interesting. Yeah, (laughs) about time. uh, But then coming back, so when we're talking about what we talk about cholesterol, we're really meaning these things called lipoproteins. They're very complex particles and they're actually, they're like little submarines that go around in our circulation and they carry mixtures of cholesterol and triglycerides, which is another form of fat. So, you know, probably about 20, 30 years ago, we started developing an understanding that there was so-called HDL, high-density lipoproteins, and LDL, low-density lipoproteins, and we assumed that the HDL was good and the LDL was deleterious to health. But now, uh, give you an example of what I do in my practice, I actually do something called lipid electrophoresis on the LDL particles, and we break that down into a further seven subfractions, mm. and we know that some of those subfractions are actually nice and healthy. They're not prone to oxidation at all and they have no adverse impacts on health. And some of them are potentially atherogenic. They might actually contribute to plaques. They might actually be prone to oxidation. But a lot of people getting around there with high LDL levels have none of this small, dense LDL. They have all the good stuff. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, if you don't measure it, you won't know. I'm sure as Ken Sakaris, I'm sure, has said to you that you can get a good idea of what your LDL profile will be simply by having a look at what your triglyceride level is because we know there's very strong association. And if your triglycerides, generally, if they're less than 1 or less than 0.8, then it's very unlikely that you'll have an oxidised LDL profile. But uh, I have a lot of patients who come in and they're, they're told that they need to go on a statin, they're told that their cholesterol is too high, and when we check it, there's actually no problem to be seen. And the other interesting thing is, is that we know that eating saturated fats makes your LDL increase, but it's actually 
certain carbohydrates that makes it get oxidized. Mm -hmm. So it's actually sugar damage to this complex LDL particle by the way of something called glycation mm -hmm. that actually make, makes that particle actually get a little bit smaller and then makes it susceptible to be taking up uh, the blood vessel walls. Yeah, so that's the missing part of the conversation that, you know, I think you, you're speaking about a lot. Um, I know you have run a number of seminars through Low Carb Down Under, I believe, and I think when we start to look at the impact of high-carbohydrate diets, we obviously see these huge volume of sugar being consumed, the impact of insulin, obviously, and then the glycation, which is what damages those LDL particles and is the risk mm. for CBD. Yeah, so the way I explain it to my patients very simply is that saturated fats will make your LDL go high, mm -hmm. but it's the carbohydrates that will make it go bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I think that's, this is a really important conversation because there are still far too many people with high total cholesterol or just looking at that LDL number in, in total, which as you say, is, is not cholesterol. It's the, it's the carrier, the carrier protein. Um, and they're being told to cut out animal fats, eggs, cheese, full fat dairy, the list continues, not to mention then being potentially prescribed a statin drug. Exactly. Mm. Yes, so we're grateful for um, professionals like you who can obviously break down those myths, but um, is this something that, that your textbook is going to con contain so we can start to educate the broader practitioners? Yeah, so the clinical sports medicine, certainly in the nutrition chapter there, we, we challenge a lot of dietary myths. Mm. Um, so saturated fat being the low-lying fruit, the effect on cholesterol is one. But even uh, things like, our protein requirements and our dietary fiber requirements and our hydration requirements. It's almost everywhere you look in the field of nutrition, it's based on uh, long-standing belief without much substance. Yeah, you're turning into the modern-day myth buster, which I love because there are so many, yeah, I guess, guidelines that we've just blindly followed. I wanted to actually speak to the fiber conversation. Um, what, what has your deep dive into the research shown you about the, the impact of fibre and what our guidelines are potentially um, or how they are potentially incorrect? Well, I mean, this was something that was, I found really surprising. So everybody, quote, unquote, knows that fibre is wonderful for constipation and it's the only effective way to prevent and treat constipation. But I went looking for the apps, the evidence. I went looking for the papers that proved this. And I was just staggered that there's been no good quality con randomised controlled trials looking at fibre and the symptoms of constipation. What we do have is we've got some data that shows that if you have fibre, it will lead to the stool being bulkier. It increases the faecal mass. And that it might actually speed up what we call the intestinal transit time. So the speed which uh, a substance progresses through the intestines. But in terms of the symptoms of constipation, the things that people get bothered by, the bloating, the having to strain to pass a stool, bleeding, these kind of things, there was no clear evidence that fibre was beneficial. And I couldn't find any randomised control trials, but I did come across a case control trial and as far as I know, this is the best evidence that we have on the role of fibre in constipation today. And it was absolutely fascinating because it took a group of people who were 
to be fair, we're mostly on a high fibre diet at baseline. And they stratified them into different types of diets, ranging from a high fibre diet, a reduced fibre diet, and then even at the extreme end, zero fibre diets, where they totally eliminated breads and cereals and brown rices and these kind of things. And what they found was that when people were put on a high fibre diet, their symptoms of things like bloating and pain and strain opening their bowels actually got worse. And in the zero fibre group, and there was 41 participants in this group, 100% of them had complete resolution of all the symptoms measured. And I just found this staggering. So 100% of people, so these people are chronically constipated and when they were put on a zero fibre diet, every single one of them had their symptoms get better. And of all these 41 people in this group, every one of them had exactly one bowel motion a day. And this compared to the high fibre group, which had a bowel motion on average every 6.83 days. So there's just a staggering, staggering difference. And I mean, it's almost, I'm surprised that this paper, this is several years old now, I think it was done in 2012. I'm surprised it hasn't had more attention. I'm surprised people haven't attempted to replicate it. And as it stands, it's the single best piece of research that's been done on constipation and fibre. Yeah, that is so fascinating. How do you do a zero fibre diet? So they were actually quite strict. So essentially, uh, I mean, this is going to upset some people, I'm sure, but it's tending towards a carnivorous diet. So, I mean, fibre is only found in plant foods. So it wasn't carnivorous diets, but they did make sure that they excluded cereals and breads. Uh, I think they permitted white rice, but they, they excluded brown rice. And I think they they sieved or filtered some of their other juices. They mm. they had ways of making sure there was no fibre. Mm. And what about vegetables? So I haven't got the specifics of it in front of me, but we mm. know that some vegetables have far more fibre than others. Mm. I suspect they would have permitted um, small quantities of low fibre. Yeah, um, okay. But essentially, this would be tending towards a, a plant-free diet. Interesting. Okay. So we know that in Australia, the recommendations are obviously that 25 grams of fiber a day for females and 30 grams per day for males. But I agree with you. I think if the research is there, that the studies definitely need to be replicated or or explored further because there are also two very or three very distinct groups of fiber. We talk about the the um, insoluble fiber, which are those whole grain breads and cereals, you know, the wheat products and those foods that our food pyramid has been convincing us that we need to eat in the six to 11 serves per day. But obviously then we've got soluble fiber like fruit and veggies. So I'd be interested in how that differs from a digestive health and and, um, transit time point of view as well. Well, obviously, fibre is not just about constipation. There's Mm. a lot of discussion about its role as a prebiotic. Now, essentially, you know, fibre can be acted on by the bacteria in our colons or deep down in our guts, and the bacteria will ferment the fibre. And in that process, they produce short-chain fatty acids along with gas. And it's this gas, by the way, which leads you to feel bloated. Now, the two major types of fibre, soluble and insoluble, the soluble fibre is much more prone to fermentation than insoluble, but the insoluble fibre can still have a degree of um, fermentation applied to it, although that 
what's traditionally thought to be more of a bulking effect. Mm. The interesting thing is that the thought about these uh, short-chain fatty acids being essential for health, um, what actually happens is they get taken up by the cells that line the colon called the clonocytes, and the clonocytes then convert these short-chain fatty acids into ketones. And there's been some interesting, actually, animal studies where they've had a look at models of inflammatory bowel disease and they've compared enemas of short-chain fatty acids compared to systemic infusions of ketones. And they've actually found that the systemic infusions of ketones are actually more beneficial for the inflammatory bowel disease than was the short-chain fatty acid enemas. Mm. So... The fascinating thing about this is, I mean, we still need to do a lot more research on this, but it's certainly suggesting that a state of nutritional ketosis could in and of itself be beneficial for the inflammatory uh, bowel diseases. And it also suggests that there's nothing unique about short-chain fatty acids uh, and the benefits that they can give that cannot be provided through other sources. That is very interesting because we talk a lot about short-chain fatty acids and in particular butyrate from a colon health point of view and obviously the, the balance of the, the bacteria in that internal ecosystem. But <laughs> I think there's obviously complications that come with that because of the way um, fibre can react to or people can react to fibre. And then obviously from a ketogenic point of view, we can do that with diet alone. So not necessarily any supplements required and here's the other thing. that um, There's so many nuances to this topic and people try and simplify it too much. And, for instance, amino acids, if they're not properly digested, they can be acted on by clonic bacteria to produce ketone bodies as well. And in actual fact, in animal diets, the amount of ketones that are produced from the amino acids is higher than uh, on a plant-based diet. So in some of the studies, and there's uh, one study I remember reading from Nature, so these are good quality research papers demonstrating this, and it just seems to be uh, it's not widely known. And I guess the other one of the interesting things for me is the similarity between FODMAPs and fibre. So I don't know if you've talked to your listeners before about FODMAPs or not, if, they, uh, have, if they'll yeah. know what they are. So FODMAPs are essentially... They, uh, they travel down to the colon. They're not well digested. Gut or colonic bacteria can digest them and they produce gas and then you get all sorts of symptoms as well, very similar to fibre. Now, on a, uh, on a ketogenic diet or a low-carb diet, both fibre and FODMAPs can produce gut symptoms through very, very similar mechanisms. And they're hidden in lots of foods. So cauliflower, mushrooms, tomato skins, nuts, especially almonds and macadamias, these kind of things. These foods, which are often staples on low-carb and ketogenic diets through either their fibre content or their FODMAP content, are prone to causing gastrointestinal upset. So when I have people come in and they say, oh, the low-carb diet causes a lot of constipation, it's often, uh, and they're saying, I need to have more fibre. The irony is that their fibre intake has often increased on their previous diet, and it's the increase in fibre intake which is actually causing them their symptoms. 
that's a really important myth because as you would know firsthand, a lot of people when they transition from high carb to low carb get constipated and they automatically assume it's because they're not eating enough fiber because they've taken out the cereals and grains, which is what in their mind contains all the fiber. So what they're forgetting about are the foods that they've probably increased tenfold because we all know cauliflower features very heavily in a low carb diet. Um, mm. So it'd be fascinating for someone experiencing that constipation to actually look at the grams of fiber they're consuming per day by comparison to see if it if there was an increase or or decrease causing the problem. It's really easy to deal with. So I get my patients to do a food diary. I highlight the foods that are high in fiber or high in FODMAPs. And the FODMAPs are usually the artificial sweeteners, by the way, the polyols, the sugar alcohols, and they don't get a free pass with my patients, I, I don't like them, yeah. and we eliminate them and their symptoms will disappear. And most people will have a threshold uh, at which they can consume it before they develop their symptoms. Mm -hmm. So, And we'll just gradually reintroduce. And we work with some fantastic dietitians here, very experienced, so low-carb, ketogenic-friendly to a T, but obviously all the other knowledge that uh, dietitians carry and under their supervision, the gut symptoms will just disappear. Yeah, absolutely. We talk about the ceiling effect. So often it is just hitting the ceiling with a certain food and that's when the symptoms occur. So it's important to acknowledge that you probably don't need to cut that food completely out. Um, if you do, it's obviously very short term, but you've got to work out that tolerance so that you can still... Exactly. Yeah. There's definitely a threshold. Yeah. I totally agree. I love that. A really important conversation, but I think definitely interesting for potentially all our new low carbers to jump into something like MyFitnessPal and have a look at their grams of fiber per day now versus when they were doing a more conventional food pyramid or high carbohydrate diet. Yeah, and uh, the trouble is that the foods involved are often the staples on low carb. We have cauli cauli rice, cauli mash. You know, who doesn't like a handful of nuts here or there? Mm-hmm. And it's just, uh, it's very easy to fall into uh, a diet with excess fiber. Yeah, for sure. I love that. Fascinating. Um, I also wanted to get your thoughts on salt. I know you had, um, you made some comments about that's an area that you were really dialing in personally but when you realized that you had developed metabolic syndrome. What does the research show about salt versus our nutritional guidelines in Australia? Well, I'm actually really happy to be able to say that our nutritional guidelines as of September last year seem to be aligning themselves with the evidence. <laughs> Except we didn't at, know about it. <laughs> at, at least from an end. Yes, so in September last year, this was updated on the, on the website from the NHMRC regarding sodium consumption. Now, it hasn't been widely promoted and it certainly uh, isn't, clearly written in a way that you can understand but if you actually have a look at their website and you search for upper limit you'll notice that the upper limit of recommended sodium intake has been removed mm. for an individual now there's a lot of terminology um, that's particular to the field of nutrition and i'm sure you know we have things like rdi and estimated average requirements and upper limit and the fact that there is no upper limit that's specified at the moment um, is hugely important. It's basically the Australian, uh, this body acknowledging that there is no level of intake beyond which it has been proven 
that sodium will cause harms. Now, just to make the picture a little bit murkier, though, they still continue to promote what they call a population target, an SDT. And the population target is set at 2,000 milligrams of sodium a day. Now, this is confusing because on one hand, they're saying, have as much salt as you like. There's no evidence that having too much sodium is going to be deleterious. And on the other hand, they said, we want the average person in Australia to be having 2,000 milligrams of sodium a day. Now, the way they explain this is that they were informed by a meta-analysis which found that if they could reduce the average sodium intake from about 3.5 grams a day down to 2.1 grams a day, that would lead to an average reduction of systolic blood pressure of, wait for it, 2 millimetres of mercury. Oh, dear. Now, this was hypothesised to then have lead to mortality benefits. The, the strange thing is there's been no mortality data actually quoted. So if you're an individual... Our current guidelines in Australia say there's no WAPA limit, but on the whole, we would like the population to have 2,000 milligrams a day because that would lead to an average reduction in blood pressure of 2 millimetres of mercury. Now, the ironic thing about this is that it's actually insulin that causes essential hypertension and not carbohydrates. So when I was in medical school, we got taught about a condition called essential hypertension, and we're like, what does that even mean? Why is it called essential hypertension? And the explanation was, well, it's called essential because everybody just gets it and we don't know why. It's like, well, that's a really unsatisfying explanation. Mm -hmm. And we now know that this so-called essential hypertension is an insulin-dependent disorder. So what that means is that if you don't have high insulin levels, you will not have essential hypertension. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason for this is because insulin actually regulates what our bodies do to sodium. If you have high levels of insulin, your body holds onto sodium. It won't let it come out in the urine. So uh, this is a really important point. So on one hand, we're having this population target for sodium trying to lower blood pressure. And on the other hand, all the science would suggest we should be trying to lower our insulin levels. Now, probably the best piece of research done on sodium and risk of dying was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, you know, a really reputable journal in 2014. And they actually were estimated how much sodium people were have coming out in their urine. And this is an important point because a lot of the previous research got people to estimate how much sodium they were having in their diet. Now, if your listeners are sitting there today, have a think of how many milligrams of sodium have you eaten today? You have no idea. It's impossible to estimate. So by changing the methodology based on intake to one that we could measure in the urine was really important. Mm -hmm. And what this study, they had over 101,000 participants in over 17 countries, and they found that the lowest risk of all-cause mortality was associated with a urinary excretion of between 4 and 6 grams of sodium a day. Now... It's also, we probably need to point out that sodium and salt are not the same. Yeah. So sodium is contained within table salt, but it's also paired with chloride. So 10 grams of table salt is equivalent or contains 4 grams of sodium. Mm -hmm. So that, that's just so people can get a bit of ref reference there. It's commonly misunderstood the difference between sodium and table salt. Yeah, you're right. There's no way to measure it, of course. 
Um, and so the four to six grams of the urinary excretion, has that been a big part of why the dietary recommendations were changed? Because that's obviously we're talking... I think the evidence is overwhelming. I, yeah. I think that... No, so we're, I'm not privy to their discussions behind closed doors, but I'm almost certain that it's this weight of evidence which has led them to removing the upper threshold. Mm. And the really interesting thing is that there is a slight increase of all-cause mortality when you go beyond six grams, but when you go less than four grams, there's a, a rapid, really steep increase in risk of all-cause mortality. So the only conclusion you can take from that is that too little salt is far more deleterious than too much salt. Yeah, and I think you need to say that again. <laughs> so from this data, the data published in this study in 2014 in the New England Journal of Medicine would indicate that too little salt is more harmful to your health than too much salt. And we, haven't, we have a look at um, people who have heart disease. There was a study published in 2016 and it looked at what would happen with people who'd had a heart attack if they were placed on a low-salt diet or a, a standard a high-salt diet. And the really interesting thing, now this was not a randomised controlled trial, and to the best of my knowledge, we haven't got any randomised controlled trials at the moment. But uh, So this is really only associational data. But it indicated that people who were placed on a restricted-salt diet had something like an 80% increased risk of future cardiac events compared to people that were not placed on sodium-restricted diets. And so this really suggests that we need to do a lot more research in this area. And if this finding turns out to be true, then it's absolutely huge. Absolutely massive. I think that's going to change so much. I look forward to more studies in that area and, and certainly this conversation being spread further. I feel like the cholesterol conversation is one we've been having for a number of years now. It still has a long way to go, but I feel like, and I would like to get your opinion, that the salt conversation is, I guess, newer. And so we're still seeing that myth around lowering your salt com um, consumption coming through the conventional wisdom. Yeah, look, it's disheartening too, because every time you, when you read the research and look at it closely, uh, it's really unambiguous and it's really uh, it's difficult to know um, where this is going to go, how, how are our guidelines, well, fortunately our guidelines have started, but we've still got messaging in the media to the contrary and uh, I, I just wish that uh, the people writing articles on this topic would be a wee bit more informed. Oh, I totally agree. And I, I mean, it's been a long time since I've bought a textbook because I've always found the bulk of the information to be um, far too archaic. But I just think that the, the release of clinical sports medicine in the updated versions is going to be pivotal in changing this conversation. Well, I hope so. I mean, it, it really depends how widely it's disseminated. I mm. mean, it, it's a sports medicine textbook. So uh, I, uh, I'm not sure that it's going to be ending up on the bookshelf of uh, dietitians anytime soon, but uh, certainly it is, it's the best-selling sports medicine textbook in the world. And I think um, hopefully it reaches enough people and uh, enough health professionals, the physiotherapists and doctors and the like who do buy it and hopefully read it. Mm. Um, hopefully it does inform practice. Yeah, absolutely. And Peter Bruckner is obviously writing 
um, many more books now and he's got a fat lot of good and maybe we convince him to do a, a salt one next. <laughs> yeah, so, well, look, I'm actually, um, I'll, I'll make sure that we do have a salt section in, the, yeah. in this chapter. Yeah, amazing. Very, very cool. So I just wanted to give you the space to add anything else that you wanted to um, in the time that we've got left today. But I'd also love for you to um, direct us to where our listeners can learn more about you and I can pop some more information in the show notes for those that might, um, yeah, want to connect with you further. Well, look, I think one thing I probably haven't mentioned is about our, uh, the metabolic clinic, which I actually run with uh, an orthopedic surgeon, uh, Dr. Duran Chur. I mean, that in itself is a, quite an interesting story. So as a sports doctor, I deal with a lot of athletes and not every athlete you see effortlessly maintains their weight. They have to main, get to competition weight and the coaches put a lot of pressure on them. And I used to put a lot of athletes, and I still do, on restricted carbohydrate diets and they were having fantastic results. Now, I used to uh, discuss this with Duran, who I know quite well, and one day he called me up out of the blue and basically he unloaded and he said, look, I just don't know what to do with these guys. I'm operating on all these people for knee arthritis and these problems which if they could just lose some weight, they probably wouldn't need their operations. And when I try to get them to lose weight, they go and see dietitians and it doesn't work and the other half of my patients say, well, I'm going to go find another surgeon who's not going to be so mean and he'll operate on me anyway. So he goes, would your approach that you're using for athletes benefit my patients? And I said, well, of course it would. It's human physiology. Mm -hmm. So we opened up a clinic together uh, that's been running for a few years now and we've had some absolutely amazing results. And about half of the patients that are actually sent through with uh, surgery penciled in end up cancelling their operations. Mm. And I mean, for me, it's just, it's amazing to see and it's incredibly satisfying as a doctor to be able to make those kind of differences to people's lives where if I'm just prescribing medications and um, I guess following a more traditional approach, it's, uh, it, it's much less satisfying. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's so powerful that there are models like your metabolic clinic because you can obviously, on one hand, still provide the surgery, but probably as a last resort rather than that first point of call. Yeah, well, I see my job as um, acting as a filter between people and surgeons. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm, a, I'm a physician, I'm not a surgeon. Mm -hmm. And I think my job is to avoid or at least delay surgery for as long as is possible, as, as is reasonable. Yeah. And we've actually, uh, we do, we've got a website called lowcarbdoctors.com.au and we've got several lectures on, on there and we're in the process of updating our website and we'll be uh, putting on uh, a lot more resources. Um, there won't be any paywalls or anything like that, so people are welcome to get on there and uh, enjoy the information. Amazing. You're such a wealth of knowledge. It's been so great to chat with you today and thank you for all the work that you do. It's quite tireless of you, but I love how passionate you are to change the space and to improve um, the lives of your patients and beyond. Oh, look, it's, I'm absolutely delighted that I've been able to talk about my favourite topic. <laughs> I mean, this is something I'm, I'm, I'm truly passionate about and uh, people like you in the field that are able to communicate and get the message out there. It's just, you know, what you're doing with the podcast is essential. 
I mean, we have to share this message. Mm. It, it's important and it actually does change people's lives. Yeah. So I, totally I'm agree. delighted that uh, to be able to be here. Awesome. Thank you so much. Head to the show notes for more info, team. And, Paul, I hope to have you back on the show again very soon. Look forward to it. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This year, the Wellness Summit returns. The only lesson is ever going to be your learning. That's it. As long as you're learning, that's your lesson. When you stand in front of the mirror, the talk, the things that go on between these ears in the morning can also be what sets you up for a day. And if you've beaten yourself up for not being the most extraordinary person that you can be, then start now. We make it hard for ourselves. We make things difficult for ourselves because we go and apply a whole bunch of stories and a whole bunch of drama and a whole bunch of I'm not good enough to the things that occur in our lives. Wake the heck up. Today is a new day. And here's where it can change. Kim Morrison and Karen Smith feature at the 2018 Wellness Summit. Bigger and better than ever. Tickets on sale Friday, May 4 at thewellnesssummit.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.